0: All right, in the chairs in front of you, there should be a book rack with Bibles. And if you'd like to grab one of those, we're going to be in Habakkuk chapter 3 on page 808 in the Bibles that we have here. 808 Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to do verses 16 to 19. I'm going to read the text, then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 16 reads like this. I heard, and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the height. For the director of music, on my stringed instrument. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray right now that as we've opened your word and read it together, we're praying that by your spirit, through that word, you would speak. We pray, God, that you would help each and every one of us that are here in person and watching online and will watch later. We pray that you would help each and every one of us have an experience with the living God. Help us to have faith in who you are and what you've done and help shape and order our lives according to that reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of Habakkuk because we recognize we we need to be instructed by God himself on how to live life in the midst of troubling times. Whether that means that society is troubling or whether we're just simply looking at our our individual lives and saying, this is not how I expected it to go. We need help from God to know how to do that well. Now, what we've noticed is a transformation of Habakkuk himself. As we went from chapter 1 now to chapter 3, What we've noticed is that he went from being a person who was very concerned and even, you could probably say, upset with God, raising complaints to God and wondering, God, what are you doing? And we watched this transformation happen to him. And now we find him in the final verses of our our book, we find him rejoicing in God, even in the midst of the hardest of situations. So we've seen him go through this physical transformation. And my hope has been that as a church, we also are being transformed by God's spirit through his word, that we go from people who have concerns and hesitations and doubts about God to people who have confident faith in what, who God is and what he's up to in our lives. Well, let's look at this. The first thing that I note here is this effect that the word of God has had on the prophet. The prophet has heard from God and he physically reacts to it. Notice in verse 16, it says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. He's saying, when I heard from God, I had a physiological response to it. My body reacted to the to the gravity, to the weight of who God is. I, I, didn't, I wasn't like a dispassionate learner. Like, God said something, and I kind of intellectually checked it in and go, okay, that's interesting. He says, no, I heard from God, and it affected me. It changed my body. Right? And this doesn't surprise us if you go to your physician and you're doing a checkup. sometimes they'll ask you, "How's your stress level?" Right? Because the physician, though the physician is observing your body, the physician knows if you have a, a, an, you know unmanageable amount of stress in your life, it, it will kill you. Your body will fall apart. And so they're concerned with those sorts of things. If you experience something, whether spiritually or emotionally that's heavy enough, it will affect your body. That's what's going on with Habakkuk. He heard from God and his body says, whoa, buddy, this, whatever that was, that, that was tremendous and, and we're quaking now. We're, we're, we're shuddering at the gravity of these things. Now, in the Bible, this happens all the time. When people come into contact with God's vision or his revelation, when people hear from God or experience God in a profound way, often what happens is they physically react to it. So we find in the Bible, people hearing from God and they fall down. They think they're dead. And angels often have to come to them and go, hey, you can get up now. Don't be afraid. But they're afraid. And uh, they, they fall down. Uh, I'll give you two examples from the book of Daniel, another prophet who is made aware of visions of God. And in chapter 7, he describes what it, what it was like for him to interact with the vision that God had given him. This is chapter 7, verse 28 of the book of Daniel. It says, this is the end of the matter. So this is at the conclusion of the vision. He says, I, Daniel, was deeply troubled in my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So hearing from God, he he, registers in his brain, but he goes, that wasn't all that happened. I I became ghostly because of the magnitude of the things that had been revealed to me. I, I physically reacted to the word of God or in the very next chapter, Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, another vision, and it reads like this, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled at the vision. He, he experiences the the revelation of God, and it affects him at that physical level. and In those cases, he becomes ghostly white, or he becomes so exhausted he simply lays there for several days. But when when we experience the God who is, when you have an experience of the revelation of God, where God displays his glory to you, the ordinary thing that happens in scripture is that people are affected by it, even to the degree of their physical bodies reacting to the glory of God. Well, Habakkuk here has that experience, and I want to point out two different reasons why I think this is so agonizing for him. Two different features of the vision That are particularly agonizing the first is god has given him an insight into the future and what god has told him and if you've been here in previous weeks you'll know this is the case god has told him the babylonians are coming and the babylonians are a violent people who are going to lay waste to everything you love they're going to come in here and they're going to destroy the city that you love and they're going to capture the people that you love and they're going to decimate the places that you love, and it's going to happen. I think there's a weight to that, that he looks into the future and he says, if that's coming, I can't stomach it. If the if the enemies are going to invade our land and destroy our people and all that we love, I can barely stomach that. Think about, uh, I love the Marvel movies. My wife and I are kids. We watched Marvel movies, but if you remember early on and relatively early on, Iron Man gets to see a vision of the future and all the devastation that will occur, and it changes him. It changes how he thinks about the future and the choices that he makes. That's the kind of thing that's going on here. Habakkuk has now seen what's coming down the pipe, and he does not like it. God is going to allow the Babylonians to come in and rock shop, and I think that affects him very deeply. But the second thing that I notice that I actually think is even closer to the heart of the text here and more important for us, is the reason why he is physically reacting to the vision is because he has experienced the God who is, the glory of God himself. He has now heard from God in a way that actually makes him tremble. So as heavy as the devastation might be, as weighty as that might be, as emotionally exhausting as that might be, God is more so. God is more so glorious and heavy and weighty. And so he has this encounter with the God who is, and it just arrests his soul, it arrests his attention, and it affects his physical body. He experiences the glory of God. And again, this is the pattern in Scripture. When people interact with God, they, they, when they have an experience with God, they, they often are wrecked by it. Isaiah the prophet says, I am ruined, because he sees the glory of the Lord in his temple. I am ruined. Or in the New Testament, we have a we have an example of this when the, the disciples, Peter and James and John, are fishing, and the Lord shows up, and Jesus is there, and they get to apprehend something of his glory. It's veiled. I mean, he just looks like an ordinary dude, but he gets in their boat, and he tells them to you know, throw the net on the other side, and they catch this huge amount of fish. And Peter recognizes something in that moment. He's beginning to realize who it is that he's interacting with. And this is Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Something was going on. It was an ordinary fishing trip with with a guest passenger. And all of a sudden, game over. Like his life is radically changed because he apprehends the glory of this guest fisherman. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, you got to get away from me because I can't even be in your presence. And the, the Lord said to him, to Simon, do not be afraid, which indi- indicates he was very fearful. So when we come into contact with the God who is, it ought to have an effect on who we are. And I think that this is a really, really practical and important lesson for us what i would say is we need to learn to fear the lord so that we're not fearful of everything else in the world the bible tells us that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom so what we need to do as believers in god is come to a place where we recognize the glory of who god is and it changes us and we begin to to recognize that we we can navigate life and we can navigate difficulties because we have an awareness of the God who is um, fear of the Lord and put aside the other fears that we live with. And this is a really, really important thing. Thomas Chalmers, he uh, was a Puritan who, I think this was a sermon turned into a pamphlet, but it's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which is a you know, old school language. You can hear it even in the title. It's a beautiful article. I highly recommend it. Thomas Chalmers describes the fact that we're all walking around with these affection, these uh, you know emotional responses to the world, things that we long for, things that we fear, things that we feel, and those affections really rule our lives. They're they're the things that are informing our choices. They're the things that are uh, inspiring us to action and 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 the like. Those affections really do have a tremendous influence over us, and what he says. And the article is, often we start with very juvenile affection. But as we grow, our, our affections get replaced. We find new things that we love, that we long for, that we fear. And he goes through an example, and he talks about even a, even a child who maybe, and this isn't the exact example, but you know when we're young, a boy might want a toy truck. Uh, but when he gets to high school, he doesn't want a toy truck. He wants a real truck. And then he might realize, well, that's great, but you know it would be even better? a girl, right? And then so, so his affections keep graduating to these other things that he goes, this is better. Like this thing, I want even more. Um, but here's the point of the article, the thesis of the article. Here's what Th- uh, Thomas Chalmers says. He goes, you can't just decide. You can't just with your will say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've got this affection. This is ruling my life. I'm fearful. I'm timid. I'm gonna replace it with something else because I choose to. He says, "No, the way that this works is you actually have to flush it out. You have to find something superior that your heart will gravitate to, and then that lesser affection will just simply fade away. That's the expulsive power of a new of new affection. You find things that are greater, that are better, that are more significant, that are more uh, grandiose, and those things will arrest your heart, and then the lesser things will have less of an influence on you. Here's the point. As a pastor, what I want for you is for the affections of your heart to be so captured by the glory of God that everything else seems much less significant to you. I want the glory of God to become such a a definite and obvious feature of what your heart is longing for that everything else in the world is fading in comparison to your love and affection for God himself. Now, as I look at this text and I think about how that happened for Habakkuk, and I think through how can we do this practically, you might be asking, okay, core, what what do I do here? And I was thinking about the fact that it's kind of the difference between when you go somewhere and music is playing in the background, there's speakers somewhere and you, maybe you're having lunch and you're at a restaurant, There's speakers and there's music playing in the background and you go, huh, I kind of like that song, but it's subtle. And you're able to have conversations and you're able to do life and that's just background stuff going on for you versus if you're in the front row of a concert that you've chosen to be at and this is some show that is just overwhelming you, right? If you're in the front row and the main stage is doing this thing and you're there and you're like, this is annoying. I want to have a conversation here. You're, you're in the wrong venue, right? Like you're like, oh, these, this band won't turn the music down. I've got other things going on. Here's what a lot of Christians are doing. God is the background music to their life. A, a lot of Christians who've never gotten to this point of discipleship, God is just playing in the background. He's there. We acknowledge him. Sometimes we even point it out and go, I like this. I like what he's doing here. How do we get to the point where he's the main event? Some Christians have gotten to the point where they say, I'm just in the front row of what God is doing. My whole, my whole experience, is ordered around him and his glory and his magnitude. And you might say, okay, core, maybe I'm one of those, you know, background Christians, like God is there, not the, not the most important thing. What could I do? What could I do? What What would change you? What would change you is if you experience God as he is, what would change you is if you find yourself in that front row experience and you see the glory of god you hear the glory of god you feel the glory of god those things would change you so here here are my suggestions because some of us are sitting here going well how do i do that i mean i can't go buy a ticket right like how do i do that two things number one pray for it pray in this way god please show me your glory that's a that's a scriptural prayer that's a biblical prayer moses said that to god moses said god show me your glory and God said, oh, buddy, I'd love to do that, but you, you'd be toast. I'll do this for you. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll let my glory pass by you. When you're safe, I'll take my hand off. And you could just glance at that glory. And sure enough, God did that for him in Exodus. And that was enough. That changed his life. But he prayed that way. God, show me your glory. Or even Jesus in the New Testament, when he's praying over his disciples, one, one of the Final things that he said to them, he prayed over them in John chapter 17, verse 24. He says, Father, I want those that you've given to me to be where I am. And then here's his prayer I want them to see my glory. I think it's appropriate for us to pray that way God, would you please show me your glory so that it changes? The second thing I would encourage you to do is place yourself in the environment where you can experience that glory. What I'm, what I'm meaning by that is put yourself under the word of God, find yourself in places where the word of God has an opportunity to speak over you. God reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself through creation, right? You could go to the Grand Canyon and you could stand on the edge of it and the glory of God's creation could overwhelm you and that could change your life. Or you could climb a mountain and you could see the, the glory of what God has made, or you can look at the at the heavens at the stars and you could see the glory of the galaxy that God has made all of those things convey God's glory but God tells us specifically that he reveals himself to to us through his word and what we want is not some second degree experience of glory we want to see him we want to see him himself through his word so read the bible come to come to churches where the bible is read and taught from Read it for yourself and recognize that God can communicate himself through his word. All right, Habakkuk has an experience with God that physically affects him. The second thing that I want you to notice here is that it changes his life. He, he gets up from that experience and he makes two commitments. He commits himself to waiting. I'll show that to you here in just a moment. And secondly, he commits himself to rejoicing, meaning he says, okay, that happened to me. Now I've got a new way of life. I'm going to do these different things. I'm going to commit myself to these things. And I was reading this week, and uh, I was reading an account of a pastor in London during a time of revival. And so people would come to church, and what was going on was the, the Spirit of God was bringing about conviction of sin, and what was happening in the churches was that in these very like uh, churches like ours where you know we kind of just stay put, we're stoic, The church is like that. The Holy Spirit shows up and people started falling down. They would fall down under conviction of sin. And so somebody asked the pastor, what do you think about that? How do you interpret that? Do you think it's sincere? Do you think it's legitimate? And he, he wisely said this. He said, I'm not that concerned with what happens to people when they fall down. I'm more interested in what happens when they stand up. And what he's saying is, it's fine and well to have a physical reaction to God. But what he says is, what I really concern myself with as a pastor is, I want to make sure that their life now is marked by that experience. What happens when they stand back up? Well, Habakkuk, when he stands up, he says, I've got two new life agendas. Here they are. I am going to commit myself to waiting. Verse 16, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading. He says, my life now is marked by the calendar of God. I am going to wait for God's promises to come true. I'm going to order my schedule and my expectations and my anticipations according to God's timeline. I will wait patiently. Now, it's interesting because we know this is going to take a while. Back in chapter 2, verse 3, we're told, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. This is God's timeline. He's going to do it when he sees fit. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. It's a guarantee. God guarantees that these things will happen. But then we're told, At the human perspective we're told it might feel like a delay it says though it linger wait for it it will certainly come from god's perspective it will not delay from our perspective it could feel a long long ways out what we need to do is wait patiently for the day of the lord now i don't know if this is right or not math is not my forte i was doing some math this week which is scary for us i was doing some math and i started to think through okay When he writes this, the Babylonians have not yet invaded. But he's an adult because he's a prophet, right? He has a vocation. He has a ministry. So he's an adult. He's uh, doing his thing. The invasion has not yet happened. And then he says, I'm going to wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Which means he's looking down the pipe going, okay, here are some things that God said will happen. They'll come. They'll destroy everything. But then later on, God will come and he'll destroy everything. I'm waiting for that day. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is a future event of their invasion, and then there's a period of 70 years. And I started to think, huh? Mathematically, I'm not sure Vakik is there. I'm not sure that this happens in his lifetime. I'm pretty certain that this will happen long after he's gone. And the reason why I keep bringing this up in this series is because waiting patiently on the Lord. Waiting in faith means not just for a a little period of time that's an inconvenience. Waiting in faith means however long God determines, my posture is patient waiting. My responsibility is patient waiting. It might not happen with me. I might not be uh, a person who's even present during it, but I know it's going to happen. It's a guarantee, but I'm going to wait patiently for the day of the Lord. So this faith this faith gives you the ability to wait for the appointed time it's it's more than mere patience it's 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 waiting in faith it gives you the wherewithal to go through hell on earth with no with no immediate relief coming and it gives you the ability to go through it while waiting on god to make good on his promises all right commitment number 2 he's not just waiting he commits to rejoicing look at verse 18 it says yet i will rejoice i will rejoice in the lord i will be joyful in god my savior it says here's my second life ambition i'm not just waiting anymore i'm rejoicing but look at the context this is a, this is wild look at verse 17 it says though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls yet I will rejoice. He's saying, I'm going to rejoice in God in utter deprivation. I'm going to rejoice in God when the world has fallen down around me. And what he's describing here, I mean, I grew up on a tree farm, and I know when, you know, things happen and trees die, that's that's bad. It's bad for business, it's, it's hard, it's difficult. But our neighbors have a farm farm, and they've got, you know, they've got cattle and pigs and you know, all the things, all the grain, all that stuff. What this is describing is is an agricultural night. When you get to a place in society where there is nothing left, where there is no grain, where there are no livestock, where there is no prospect of relief because it has gotten that bad. We're talking about a societal collapse. We're talking about a situation with no relief in sight. That's what he's describing. So for us, imagine stock market crashes, economy tanks, people lose their jobs, supply chains dry up, and there's no relief on the horizon. There's there's nothing that we can even imagine that would fix things. We just kind of live in a situation of depression and desperation. That's what we're that's what we're talking about here. Habakkuk is saying, when that happened, and it's interesting because those are that what he painted was a picture of famine. But what we have described to us is this isn't because there's a lack of rain. It's because the Babylonian army comes in and wipes everything out. This is absolute devastation. And he, he's able to say, when that happens, where you will find me is rejoicing before God. You go, how how on earth could you do that? Because this doesn't make sense. I know when I rejoice. Do you know when it is? This will make a lot of sense to all of us. I rejoice when things go well, right? When the news comes back and it's good, I'll rejoice. When things are favorable, I'll rejoice. When uh, things just kind of work out, you know, the way that I hope that they will, I'll rejoice. We rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in the blessings of God. What this is saying is there is a way by faith to rejoice, not in the circumstances, but in God himself. I will rejoice in God, my Savior. This is wild, but it is normative for Christians. Look at James chapter one. The apostle James puts it like this. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And he says, we have the ability as believers to to be joyful come what may. We have the ability to be joyful even when life stinks. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking anything. Even in deprivation, God is able to wield that for good. Even in the lack of circumstances being favorable, God is able to show his favor to us because he is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So we have the ability here, according to Habakkuk, to go, to go through hell on earth and to still trust God. A couple of reasons why this is the case. Notice the personal relationship that he has with God. When he describes his rejoicing, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. He has that personal commitment to the Lord. He says he's my God. And he is my, the kind of God that I have a relationship with, and that is enough. See, that's, that's the, the key. It's recognizing that we don't just want the blessings that God can give us. We want God. And if we have him, then we have everything. If we don't have him, we have nothing. Martin Luther wrote a a hymn called "Mighty Fortress, and in in it, these are the lyrics. It says, "Let, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. What it's saying is there is a way by faith to entrust yourself to God, and the world can fall down around you, and things can be taken from you, and you will still be okay because of your faith in God and in his future promises. And I want to point this this out real quick before we move to our final thing. One of the reasons why he is joyful in God is because he sees God as a savior. He sees God as a savior. We as Christians today look through Calvary. We look, we're on the other side of the cross and we recognize, yes, God loves us enough that he sent his one and only son to die in our place so we could be forgiven of sins, so that we could be made right with God and live with him forever but even from the old testament perspective habakkuk is recognizing god is going to make things right again he's a savior and he doesn't have all the categories that we have but he thinks god is going to come and and rescue his people because that's what he's done before he's rescued them from slavery he's rescued them from military threat he's rescued them in all sorts of ways and he says that's my god that's my savior And he's trusting that God is going to make all things right again, and God does by the sending of his Son. Well, finally, let's look at this new way of life. This new way of life, it's an invitation to entrust yourself to God and experience his strength, his provision, and his goodness. Verse 19, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He comes to the conclusion, God, God is the way that I'm doing this. God is the reason that I'm able to stand in the midst of the most awful of circumstances. I look at uh, circumstances going on in our church, the brokenness, the pain. And, and when I evaluate, how is it that they're surviving? It's not based off of your gumption, like you're trying really hard. And you de- determine, I'm just going to resolutely make it through hell. No, I, I look at some of you and I go, it is a mercy of God that you are still standing. It is a kindness of God. It is his strength in you, and we celebrate that. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He takes us up into the high and lofty places that are treacherous, that are dangerous, and he says, you live here now. When I was a high school student, I don't know, we got a picture maybe? We got a picture of uh, a mountain goat, a deer up in the... I don't know if we do or not, but life will... Maybe you've seen it on Facebook. There's one where there's there's a mountain goat that's on the side of a a cliff like this, and it's just like hanging out, like just like on its tiptoes, on its hooves, hanging out there. That's what, there it is. That's one. He looks funny. But look, if that were your life, some of you look at that and you go, "Ah, I think I'd rather be at home on my sofa than living here. But God says, I'm going to place you up in these high and lofty places that are treacherous, but I'm going to make your feet sure. I'm going to make your, your your footing certain. You're going to live there and you're going to look at it and go, "Man, if I were to miss if I were to miscalculate a step here, I'm falling to my demise." And that's what it's going to feel like. But God says, "I'm going to place you here in this high and lofty location and you're you're going to experience the blessings of living there." When I was a high school student, we went out to Colorado with a group and uh, the youth pastor, we, we were just like hanging out and there was a mountain there and the youth pastor was like, let's climb this thing. And there's no path, there's no trailhead. There's, we, we just went up a mountain with a group of us. And as a high school student, all of my ideas were good ideas. Like I, there was rarely a situation where I'm like, I don't think we should be doing this, right? Like as a, as a teenager, it's like, yeah, this will be fun. But when I got up there, I had one of those rare moments where I looked at our group and I'm watching as, you know, we don't have sure footing on anything and things are falling and the group in back is like having to dodge rocks and tree limbs and things. And I think to myself, huh, this is not a great idea. But we're up there and it's treacherous. But you start to look around and you go, this is magnificent. And that's the place that God wants to put you. And it's because of his strength and because of his provision for you, you, you will be enabled to live comfortably there you will be placed in that beautiful and treacherous place to tread on the height now high places in the bible they mean different things for for one throughout scripture high places are religious locations high places are are sites where people will build an altar and they will worship and sometimes they'll worship the god who is sometimes they'll worship other gods but high places are often sites of of worship and so he's saying i'm going to I'm going to take you to this place of of religious experience with God. But another feature of a high place is the military advantage that you would have. When you are up in a high and lofty place, you have the military advantage. You see things that are coming from a long ways away, and you're also higher up than anyone who's trying to attack you from below. You have a position of strength. So what it's saying is whoever is controlling the religion and the military of the world, they're really in control. And what Mark, uh, David Pryor puts it like this he says, Whoever controlled the high places were effectively in charge of the neighborhood. Whoever controlled the high places of the religious sites and the military, uh, you know, places of strength, he says, Those are the people who really are in charge. And God is saying, That's going to be you guys. Now, it's not going to look like it. It's, in fact, it's going to look like you're in a disadvantage because, right, the, ev- everything is broken around you, nothing's going your way. But he says, In actuality, I'm going to enable you to tread on the height. As, as believers in me, God is saying, you, you will live in these high and lofty places. Now here's how it works. They, they would be able to say to the Babylonians, we have the upper hand, which is really silly because the Babylonians go, have you seen my army? Like We're, we're going to destroy you. We're going to wipe you off the face of the planet. And believers in Christ, believers in God are able to say, actually we've got the advantage here and you go no 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 i don't think you actually do but that is the way that god works he takes what appears to be weakness and he says i I am going to through my strength enable these people to be sure-footed and this is the way that even the gospel itself works remember how in acts chapter 2 peter's preaching and he, he he's describing what happened with Jesus of Nazareth and all the evil people and the religious leaders who hated his guts. And they arrested him and they tried him and they accused him of things that he actually was the king of the Jews. And then they had him executed. And Peter's preaching a sermon and he says all those things that appeared like the enemy was advancing and taking ground and, and winning. And it appeared that the Lord was losing. He said all these things happened according to the purposes of God. And what appeared like defeat actually was victory. What looked like a devastating defeat, defeat was actually the way of salvation. Evil people put him to death, but God raised him from the dead, and he is, he's exalted now. He's in the highest of places. He's seated at the right hand of God forevermore. That's what God is saying to us today. If you will believe in Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death, his, uh, his work on the cross for you and his resurrection power at work in your life. God says, you will then be res- you will you will be leaning on his strength, on God's strength, and you will you will be enabled to live life even if it looks like hell on earth. Well, what should we do about it finally? What should we do about this message of Habakkuk? And the final thing that I want to say is remember it. Memorialize it. Make it a feature of how you talk to other Christians. Make it a feature of how we organize worship. Look at verse 19. It says, for the director of music on my stringed instrument. That's the postlude. Message over, but here's something more you need to do. Take this message and sing about it. Take the message of living by faith in the promises of God and make it your anthem. Take the message of being willing to wait patiently on the promises of God and to rejoice in devastation and take that truth and make it your song. Sing about these things because God has shown us that it is possible to live through hell on earth but because of our faith in Christ we can live by faith in the Son of God and experience the goodness of God in this world and in the age to come. Come what may. Let's pray. Lord, we Pray right now that by your spirit you would continue to move in our hearts inclining us to recognize the beauty of what you've done. You're the real God, sent his son to die in our place. Would you please over, overwhelm each and every one of us with a sense of your glory in such a way that we cannot help but be moved by it? Would you give us the resolve to Commit ourselves to waiting patiently for the anointed time to come and would you help us to rejoice in the meantime help us to live our lives by faith in the son of god being enabled by the strength that you supply we pray in jesus name amen amen